Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. What? Wait a second, Catherine. What's that? Isn't that what you were asking for? It's the sound of an explosion from butane. And Laura, I went down a real internet rabbit hole to find it. Uh, nobody was hurt, don't worry. But I just have to say to listeners, do not try this at home. Uh, yeah, don't. Um, I remember asking you for it. I just wasn't expecting it right now. Um, hey, everyone out there. That is Catherine. She is our senior producer. Hello, over on the other side of the glass. Uh, so, Laura, why did you want that sound anyway? Because I'm about to tell a story about a brand new experiment that has fused ancient indigenous knowledge along with modern science, along with, wait for it, chairs from Ikea. Okay. And a butane torch. Okay. But actually the butane ended up being ditched because it exploded. So, so the field scientists decided to switch to propane. Okay, I am interested. I am a little bit confused. Uh, so can we just back up to the basics? I'm Catherine Rolfson. You're Laura Lynch. This is What on Earth, where we bring you a world of climate solutions. Hey, I never get to say that part. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm going to say the rest of it. Today's episode actually isn't about butane explosions. That was just a bit of a tease. It's actually all about gardens as climate solutions. From the beach to your own backyard... And this first story is a solution from the past that's actually found new traction in today's warming world. So we're going to start on a beach on one of many small Gulf islands off the coast of BC, Russell Island, close to its much better known neighbor, Salt Spring. And it's where a collaborative effort among Coast Salish nations is having a big impact. I'm Ken Thomas from Penelicate Tribe. My traditional name is Sumpkinam, so fish and wildlife uh, person for Penelope tribe. Ken Thomas got up very early on this showery morning to join me on the beach to show me the centuries-old ways of his people, the ingenious design they built to ensure a reliable supply of seafood, kind of like a pantry. Right now, he's raking the sand, tilling it, he says, using farming terms, keeping it from becoming, as he says, hard and dormant. All of this started a few years ago when the elders directed him and others to pick up large rocks from higher up the beach and place them piled one on top of the other to form a low seawall close to the low tide line. At first it was like, okay, yeah, I'll go move rocks, okay, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so so we come out, we uh, moved rocks, and then it, it really touched me in a way that I can't explain, really. Um, we had um, so many different thoughts and different stories coming from our elders. We had our elders, you know, watching. Every time I moved a rock and placed it on the wall, I was like, wow, my ancestors touched these rocks, and here I am putting it back, restoring it back to its, uh, what it was meant for. It makes me feel like I'm in awe. I'm curious to know, when, when you were a child, was there talk about these, these gardens? Was it something that elders would tell you about back then? To this day, you still hear our elders saying, when the tide's out, the table's set, go get your food. 
The wall that creates that table runs the length of the beach, about 750 meters or so, and it's roughly a meter and a half tall. And because of it, the ocean water recedes slowly as the tide goes out, maintaining a cool, wet environment until the tide comes back in. And that makes the beach a welcoming shelter for all sorts of shellfish. So it's kind of like tilling the soil on a farm, I guess. Exactly, that's what it is. You know, our ancestors were <coughs> building these uh, rock walls um, to contain the uh, shellfish seed. And as, it, as the tide drops, the uh, larvae are in the water column, and then the water goes down, and they get caught up in these um, pools created by the walls. And it just benefits the beach to have this to keep food sources in here, because sometimes you get dungeness crabs coming in here, and families would go by all these different beaches and harvest their food for their journeys wherever they're going. Come in and dry clams and move on and, and barter and trade somewhere down the line where somebody hasn't been out for a while. So these areas are really important to our people. It's really amazing to see it. Technology, so to speak, that's thought to be about 4,000 years old. These so-called clam gardens are being restored up and down the coast. Now Ken and other members of First Nations here are working with researchers from Simon Fraser University in Vancouver. What is your role in the research that's going on here? Um, moving rocks. <laughs> um, Something uh, tells me you're downplaying things a little bit. There's, you know, um, Ken is being modest. He's directly involved in the work, ensuring Indigenous knowledge and practices are respected as young scientists investigate whether these gardens can help protect clams from extreme heat. Yeah, we created these little saunas for the clams. That's Emily Spencer. She's a master's student in the Coastal Marine Ecology and Conservation Lab at SFU. This is her thesis project, recreating the conditions of the heat dome two years ago that killed hundreds of people and billions of sea creatures. She's trying to find out if these traditional clam gardens can help protect marine life against future episodes of extreme heat, sure to come as the earth warms. On the beach, she and the team did that by building tents, or saunas as she said, using some pretty unscientific stuff. Then we added heat to half of them, so we created these heat dome structures um, using propane heaters and IKEA chairs. Yep, (laughs) chairs from IKEA to create the structure, inflammable sheets to make the tents, and propane to provide the heat. And in figuring out how to do all of this, Emily admits to a rather explosive discovery. Before we got there, we had experimented with some butane canisters, and unfortunately, um, one blew up. (laughs) Uh, Luckily, everyone was safe. Everyone, including the clams, since this happened before the actual experiment was carried out. So here's what Emily and the team did on the beach. At low tide, they erected a series of these small tents with the clams inside each of them so they could keep track of the temperature. They did this for five days straight, replicating the length of the actual heat dome. And it was a mad scramble to take down the tents every time the tide came back in. It sure was. (laughs) We had lots of help and we had canoes, but it was a lot of gear and a lot of of work. Then all the clams were scooped up and taken to labs for analysis. Compared to clams on normal beaches without the cooling effect of the clam gardens, what did she discover? So we've found that uh, it seems like the clam gardens um, are cooler even where we added the heat. 
Yeah, and the other thing that we've found is, you know, we've been looking at the ecophysiology of the clams on the clam gardens because we're interested in in how heat impacts their stress levels. Um, So during the heat wave, you know, we saw mass die-offs of clams, but we also maybe what we didn't weren't able to see with our eyes was the impacts on like growth rates and reproduction and pathogen infections. But with genomic methods, we're able to study that and see that response in the clams. So that's what we're doing um, with the Center for Shellfish Research at Vancouver Island University. Um, We're looking at those impacts on clam stress. That cooling effect points to the gardens as more than a way to create and maintain a food source. It suggests they may also be a climate change adaptation strategy. Emily's supervisor, SFU professor and marine ecologist Anne Solomon is here on the beach too. And as we start talking, the rain begins to fall on us. Well, I think the bigger picture here is that you're looking at a climate solution. And we're desperately looking around the world for climate solutions. And here's one that is at least 4,000 years old. And you just heard from Ken perfectly how it works. It's a very simple process. So I'm very optimistic about the future when I see examples like this. I think that's one of the bigger pictures. And these clam gardens, they're not alone in their ingenuity. Um, They're examples of sea gardens across the Pacific made by people thousands of years ago that carefully observed nature. They tinkered with it, they experimented with it, which is one reason I think it was second nature for Ken to consider actually our experiment as a valid thing to do, as something we ought to do. Um, Because in the past, people experimented with systems and they figured out what can they do to stabilize climate extremes. We have had climate extremes in the past and um, this is just an amazing, ingenious, yet simple method um, that provides a really kind of optimistic view of our future in, in coping with climate change. For Ken Thomas, green lighting the experiment was a no-brainer. If it helps the clam survive and thrive, it's worth it. Just last night we had a nice pot of steamers, uh, manila clams in Little Nick. So, you know, we still utilize it and we still love it and we, we want it around forever. So, As for the findings, Ken kind of already knew ancient knowledge had the answer. Is it also in a way uh, a vindication, an affirmation, a confirmation that what your people have done down the centuries is science in its own right that was always there but maybe not respected as much i feel yeah for sure um i think you know with the with the uh, see that clam squirting right there um you know you you look at the walls it retains the water so when it's hot out the the water is slower to drain so when when the temperature is really hot out, the beach stays cool, and so by the time the water drains out of here, the tide's coming right back up. So the the survival rate is gonna be better than on a normal flat beach. And Solomon is thrilled with this collaboration, seeing it as a way forward. So yeah. the rock wall is the future. It's not the past. Right. Well said. That's yeah. exactly right. What has the experience been like for you working together? with First Nations when they're leading these projects? You know, honestly, it's what gets me up in the morning and excites me to no end. And to see 
you know, all of the students, the, the, the generation now, this generation of undergraduate and graduate students, they see this, they recognize this, they, they, there's an, a huge appetite and, and willingness and interest in engaging with and learning from knowledge holders that have been interacting with these places for millennia. And I just see this next generation of scientists uh, considering these data sources, these practices, and these kinds of engaged research initiatives as the future. So there. And if you want to know whether I was having fun on this reporting mission, here's a clue for you. <laughs> a clam squirted suddenly. And that means it was expelling water as it was filtering out food for itself on the beach. Now, I've seen that many times growing up on the coast and digging for clams. I only wish that this time I'd been able to harvest some for myself. Now, just to let you know, Emily's research project is part of her master's thesis, which she's expecting to defend later this year, and it will be submitted for peer review and publication after that. Right, we've now left the rainy beach. Instead, I am sitting on a beautiful sun-splashed rooftop. I'm on an, another field trip here to a different kind of garden. Yeah, that's right, Laura. We're at the Vancouver Public Library. That's what on earth producer Molly Siegel. Hi. Hi, not just any garden. It is the roof garden at the Vancouver Public Library. A really lovely, quiet bit of a sanctuary here. I can look and see carnations, beautiful heather is growing. I can see some butterflies moving around trees, greenery, and of course, people enjoying the beautiful weather here, reading and just taking it all in. Yeah, it sure beats the office on a day like today. <laughs> Considering the office is just across the street. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we could bring our computers here. But joking aside, we're actually here for a reason. And that's because we heard from our listeners with questions about gardens and yards and plants and pollinators. And uh, I have some of those questions here, Laura. Have some emails printed out. Oh, you're using the old way of doing it, printing them out. <laughs> <laughs> yes, can I read some to you? Yeah, go ahead. So we heard from Chloe Font in Victoria. Uh, this is part of what she wrote. Quote, as a homeowner in a suburban neighborhood with a decent sized lot, I am always wondering about how I should be caring for this small green space in the best way possible for the planet that will help my community mitigate climate change impacts and increase the resiliency of other species and ourselves. I have questions about plantings and yard care and even our perceptions of what these spaces should be like. As I move around these spaces observing the manicured lawns with a single rhododendron, I know that we could be doing better for biodiversity by increasing diversity. Is this also a way to build resiliency? Uh, Chloe, lots of good questions there about lawns, climate, and biodiversity, and uh, some things I think we're going to be looking into. Yeah, we're going to get some answers, and those are all really good questions. But first, Laura, I have a second email to read you. Kat Vanderlinden in Ottawa wrote to us, she says, quote, My local eco-groups are constantly arguing about dandelions and native bees. The big questions are, is the pollen from dandelions actively bad for them? And do dandelions substantially distract bees from more nutritious pollen sources like native trees and plants? 
I find this debate very unfortunate because no Momay was pushed for a few years, and I think it's discouraging for eco-conscious people to be told they're endangering native bees by allowing dandelions to grow on their lawns. Okay, there's one thing in there that tripped me up. What is no mo may? It sounds like somebody's yeah. name. <laughs> yeah, I know. It was it was new to me too. Okay, no mo may just refers to this movement for people to stop mowing their lawns for the month of May, just for the month of May, and to let whatever grows there grow there. And the idea is that it's supposed to be good for pollinators like bees, but. As we will find out, the truth here in North America is a little more complicated than that. All right. Well, we've got a couple of guests joining us that are going to help answer the questions about gardens and backyards. My name's Lorraine Johnson, and I write books about native plant gardening and habitat to support pollinators. Uh, my name is Sheila Cola. I'm an associate professor in the Faculty of Environmental and Urban Change at York University in Toronto. We wrote a book together called A Garden for the Rusty Patched Bumblebee, Creating Habitat for Native Pollinators. And there you are, Lorraine Johnson and Sheila Cola. Hello. Hello. Let's start with our listener Kat's question about no, mo, may and bees. Sheila, what is your take on no, mo, may? Wow, you have some great questions coming in. Um, (laughs) Some really smart listeners. I do have some issues with the whole no mo may movement. It sort of started in the UK and in Europe, and I don't really think it's completely applicable to North America. And one of the reasons is dandelions are one of the main things that it sort of promotes. I think you you referred to it as kind of junk food, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, I don't want (laughs) to... You know, <laughs> put labels on different types of flowers, but uh, it is a really low protein source. And there was a study that showed that um, bumblebee queens that were fed dandelion pollen and prunus pollen and willow pollen for the dandelion pollen, they actually ended up eating their own eggs because they were so protein deprived. And the other thing about dandelions is it's a really successful invader. It disrupts the pollination systems of plants that are growing beside it. The pollen, if it's deposited on another plant, can actually disrupt that plant from being pollinated. So there's all sorts of reasons why I'm a little bit leery of programs that talk about promoting non-native plant species to protect native pollinators. There's a little bit of a disconnect there. Okay. Lorraine, when you hear from people who are who get excited about no mo may i'm wondering how you help channel that desire to help biodiversity yeah i think it's so important to kind of harness the energy that and the good intentions of people and direct it towards actually creating very meaningful habitat and the way to do that is by planting native plants and then maintaining a space in certain ways Uh, that will promote biodiversity and support insects and and other creatures. So, for example, leaving the leaves or leaving plant stalks. These are maintenance techniques that can also really support the native pollinators. And Lorraine, we're going to get back into that question of of native plants and, and what kinds a little later on. But I just wanted to ask you, our listener, Chloe, she asked about the look of an overgrown lawn. I'm wondering if if the idea of no mome could help people get used to that idea of a different type of yard. People are afraid of habitat gardens in some ways for aesthetic reasons. They think, oh, they're going to look messy. People are going to complain. Now, of course, you can create a habitat garden with native plants in a very formal looking style or design. But it's true that when you when you leave plants, stalks standing over the winter or you leave the dead leaves, 
you know, it's not necessarily the most common look in a garden yet. Hopefully we'll get to the place where that is common and accepted and, and just what's done. But for now, it does look a little bit different. So one of the values of Nomo May is that it kind of normalizes a, a different aesthetic, but it only does that for one month. What we need is habitat gardens throughout the growing season, not not just for one month. I've been learning so much through looking at what you've written about the subject, both of you, I, I, things I never thought about before. But when people talk about biodiversity, I don't know that backyards and city gardens always come to mind. So Sheila, I'm wondering why our personal and shared green spaces in cities are part of how we adapt to climate change. Yeah, it's so important. I think people think of cities and they think of concrete jungles, but the reality is the cities here in Canada and in the U.S., there's immense biodiversity, especially if you're looking at insects. Um, in the city of Toronto alone, we have over 300 species. The greater Toronto area, we have over 300 species of wild bees. Um, in Canada, we have over 865 species wow. of wild bees. <laughs> That's amazing. So, yeah. <laughs> And all you have to do is start looking and you'll start seeing them. And um, many of our wild bees are green and blue and silver. They're not what we're sort of trained to think about with the yellow and black striped honeybee. So, yeah, we have immense biodiversity and cities can provide a little bit of shelter for some of the things that climate change might cause. For example, if there's a drought, people will maybe water their plants. Um, if there's an ice storm and, you know, trees fall down, they are often replanted. But there's a lot of ways that cities especially um, like Toronto with our ravine system that just cuts through the city in so many ways that we can host a ton of biodiversity. And with more biodiversity, we know that systems are more resilient because the more species you have in a system, the more resilient that system is. So keeping every single pollinator and native plant there will help us as we deal with climate change going forward. Let's keep with you for a moment, Sheila. You mentioned so many species of, of bees. Um, are honeybees one of them? Uh, so we did a survey and more than half of Canadians thought that the European honeybee was a native wild species in Canada. And that is not true. It was brought here um, with settlers and it continues to be imported and exported all over the place. So if you see a honeybee, chances are there's a beekeeper that's taking care of that honeybee. They're non-native species and they're not at risk of extinction. They're very common. You can order them. You can have your own hive. Um, very different than the bees that I study, which are often endangered. <laughs> None of our native bees in North America actually make honey. All of our bees sleep for the winter, so they do not need to make honey, store honey. And honeybees do because they stay awake. They're kind of more adapted to Mediterranean type climates. Okay, I am copying to the fact that I did not know <laughs> that honeybees were Canadian. Um, but Lorraine, I'm wondering if you can talk to us then about the native bees as pollinators. Why are the relationships between na native plants, native to Canada, and pollinators so important? Well, the whole definition of native plants is, you know, a plant that has co-evolved in an area with all of the other creatures that it has relationships with and has co-evolved with. Some of these relationships are so specific and dependent. You think about the relationship between monarch butterflies and, and the native plant milkweed, for example. That's a specific relationship, a dependent relationship that a lot of us are very familiar with now. But these sorts of co-evolved 
evolved uh, specific relationships exist throughout the ecosystems. You can't just substitute other introduced or non-native plants and still be supporting those co-evolved relationships. That's just not the way it, it works. It makes sense. I'm, I'm, I'm listening to you and thinking other listeners are thinking, I really want to try this, but I don't have time. I don't have money to overhaul my entire garden. Or maybe it's the place where their family and friends spend time or where the dog plays. What is one thing that listeners could do this spring to help with biodiversity? Well, one very meaningful place to start is to think about whether or not you have a lawn. Let's say you've got an area of lawn. Think about, do I actually use all of that space that's currently devoted to the lawn that I have to look after, that I have to maintain? Or is there a section of the lawn, maybe maybe a big section, maybe it's just a small section. It will vary, you know, for everyone. But can you, for example, plant a native shrub instead in an area of the lawn? When you think of all of the flowers that are on one native shrub, it's supporting, you know, it will be supporting all kinds of life just uh, by planting, well, maybe one, ideally more than one, and and maybe even then being inspired by that when you see all the birds and butterflies and bees that visit that native shrub, and then you might think, well, maybe I can grow some habitat underneath the shrub, and then maybe spreading out even wider. And pretty soon, actually, I think once you start doing this, it's very easy to get hooked because you see the life that you're supporting. You're really good at selling this, Lorraine. <laughs> but but is, it, a, is it another a, suggestion I can give as well? Yeah, Sheila, go ahead. Don't have, um, if you go to your local park, natural areas, um, and there's a stewardship group that's pulling invasive plant species, that's another really good way if you don't have your own land to do it or your own space or time or money <laughs> to just put in, you know, a couple hours of volunteering, just pulling plants. That's a really um, excellent way to help native biodiversity as well. What about the, the flower planters that you see on city streets, Sheila? Oh, yeah, that's definitely an excellent <laughs> way. If you lobby your local business improvement association, your city councillor, whoever makes those <laughs> those decisions. <laughs> and instead of planting, I don't know, pansies and petunias, I don't really know what those colorful plants are, to plant things like milkweed and native wildflowers, you'll get some really cool species just as you're walking along main streets in your city. There is a little bit of pushback. People think it looks a little bit more messy, maybe a little bit less colorful. But in general, I think most people understand what the role is there. And um, a lot of people take pictures of the butterflies that that come to visit. And and they seem to do a little bit better, like not being watered as often and that kind of thing as well. Could I just add something? Yeah, go ahead. I love that you guys are just talking to each other. I'm just going to shut up. You guys talk. I think it's really important to stress, and as as Sheila talked about with these um, street planters, for example, I think it's really important to stress that there are all of these other community spaces, public libraries or community centres or senior centres. This work can be done and needs to be done everywhere, and community projects, there's so much energy around doing this with other people. It's such a positive way to build community, you know, human community, along with ecological community. Lorraine and I have a picture in our uh, in our book um, of someone who built kind of a shelf above their garbage bins and then just planted some native plants in some pots just above their garbage bins. And it looks amazing. (laughs) Oh, wow. What a way to dress up the garbage. (laughs) 
there are no there are no limits to the creativity that can be brought to this this search for places in our communities where we can grow habitat and provide really meaningful habitat for, for pollinators but I and do, birds and all creatures. But I do have one question. I mean, you want to get the native plants. Is, is it just as simple as going to the garden center and say, give me some native plants, please? Where, where can people find them? The best place to find native plants, to purchase native plants, because they should never be dug from the wild. There are gardening groups that will share native plants, which is amazing. And there are seed exchanges where, you know, people will share seeds. So that's one of the most inexpensive ways to do this. But for purchasing plants, the best place to do that is actually from a specialty native plant nursery. And there are specialty native plant nurseries across the country. They're really good resources. There's a website, networkofnature.org, that has a map with all of the native plant nurseries across Canada. And these are amazing sources of information as well. Just to look at online at their websites and see the sorts of plants that they have available. And that's one great way to learn about what plants are native in your particular area. Yeah, I was going to ask you, can you can you give us a couple of examples of, of what plants people can look for in some different parts of Canada? Yeah, well, some of the most valuable plants in terms of supporting pollinators. So these are sometimes called keystone species. Some of the keystone species across Canada are goldenrods, asters, coneflowers, and sunflowers. And there are native species of each of those across Ah. the country. Now, it might vary in your area, but there are also some native plants that are native pretty much across the country, like field pussy toes, pearly everlasting. They're, those uh, are great native, names. <laughs> I know. There are, there are native strawberries that, you know, you can grow as a ground cover. Wild strawberry for sun. There's woodland strawberry for shade. And this will be a great ground cover that will also provide food for humans, food for birds mm. in those delicious little berries. I was going to say all the berry plants, really, all the native berries, uh, service berry, um, all the wild blueberries, those are all excellent pollinator plants as well. Oh, wow. I mean, this has been such a, a really delightful conversation, but um, I want to just try something for a little bit of fun before we wrap up. I want to ask each of you, if you haven't done this already, to tell me what your favorite fact is about a native pollinator or plant that brings you the most joy to share with others. Sheila, let's start with you. I actually wanted to talk a little bit about goldenrod. So I think uh, maybe I'll Mm. go here. (laughs) So (laughs) it blooms at the same time as um, ragweed. So a lot of people assume that goldenrods are the reason they're sneezing at the end of the summer. And a reason why I think this is also the case is Sneezy in Snow White is walking around with goldenrod in his hand all the time. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Um, So (laughs) there's been like some inception there from early ages um, that goldenrod is somehow causing us to sneeze. It is not true. Um, Goldenrod is pollinated by insects. It has heavy pollen that sticks to insect bodies. It's not a wind pollinated plant uh, like trees and grasses are. Some trees, not all trees, but anyway. And yeah, it's such an important plant because it blooms in high abundances at the end of the growing season. So towards the fall in Southern Ontario, you see it, you know, October, even into November sometimes. And that's what monarchs need to make that trip over the Great Lakes. It's what 
all of our native bees need to build up their fat stores before they start sleeping for the whole summer. It is one of the most critical plants and so many people don't know how important it is and actually think it's a bad weed. But if you do see it pop up, I encourage you to just let it be if, if at all possible. Okay. Another lesson learned for me, obviously, you're teaching me a lot here. <laughs> Lorraine, what about you? One of the most amazing things I've learned about the relationship between plants and pollinators, I learned from Sheila, who shared shared some research that colleagues of hers had done around bees self-medicating on native plants. And what? this this completely it it I just found it incredible. You know, just a, an example of these the importance of these co-evolved relationships. When bees are infected with a very um, common um, parasite, they will self-medicate at in terms of spending longer at uh, flowers that contain um, a compound that will counteract the parasite. That is fascinating. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. There's some plants like turtle head and, and other plants that have um, alkaloids and uh, nicotine and caffeine, and that helps bees um, lower their parasite levels in ways that we're just beginning to understand. And I think that was one of the reasons why Lorraine and I wanted to write this book, because there's a lot of, you know, planting gardens for pollinator type things out there and resources out there. But we wanted to start communicating a little bit more about how complex things were and how much we don't know just yet and how important it is for us to nurture these relationships that we're still learning about. This has been such an enjoyable conversation. I've learned so much. I think we probably could go on a lot longer, but I, we don't have any more time. So <laughs> I'm going to say goodbye to you for now, and thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer... What's better? Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to What on Earth on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. I'm Laura Lynch. Coming up, we'll hear a harrowing story from the Black Summer bushfires in Australia and find out how it inspired a nurse to find solutions for caring for your health in times of climate crisis. Now, as we mentioned earlier, a couple of emails from listeners inspired us to talk about gardens this week. And our producer, Rachel Sanders, is here now to tell us about another one. Hi, Rachel. Hey, Laura. Actually, this is another email from one of the same listeners you heard about earlier. Do you remember Chloe Fott? Yep. She's the one who emailed us from Victoria with questions about how gardens can be better for biodiversity. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So I called her up. I chatted with her a little bit about her own garden. And then she passed along an article from a Victoria-based news outlet called Czech News about a species of flower in her region. Do you know what camas is? Um, <laughs> no, I've never heard of it. <laughs> okay. Well, we're going to hear all about it. The article Chloe sent us is about camas, and it offered yet another reason to plant this kind of native species, and that is to decolonize your garden. So I got in touch with the person who was interviewed in it. 
Hi, yes, my name's Cheryl Bryce. I'm a member of the Songhees Nation. Traditional knowledge holder is one of the titles I have within my community at Songhees. So Camas is native to the area where Cheryl lives on southern Vancouver Island, and the Songhees people call it Kwetlal. Well, right now is the best time of year to be seeing the camas in bloom. You'll see them throughout our traditional territory. They're variations of color, but usually they're like a purpley blue color. They're amazing. They're very beautiful and stunning right now. And they're actually one of the things that attract a lot of pollinators as well. In my traditional territory is the uh, prime area historically where my ancestors took care of the Kwetlau food system for many, many, many generations and pass that knowledge down. Oh, so she mentions the food system there. Is, is Kwetlal edible? Yes. Cheryl says the bulbs were actually an important food source for her people. They were highly sought after. They were traded up and down the coast of BC among different nations for fish, such as ulican from up north or sturgeon from the Fraser River. Okay, what does it taste like? I wondered the same <laughs> thing. It's a complex carbohydrate. It has inulin, much like an onion. So when it's cooked, it sweetens, it caramelizes. It doesn't taste like an onion, though. It tastes like camas. I guess if I was to compare it to anything, it would be kind of similar to like a parsnip, but sweeter. Sometimes it'll have that consistency of a sweet potato, but if it's cooked longer and blackened, uh, it'll have a consistency like chewing on um, licorice a little bit. Well, if it tastes like licorice. I'm not a fan of that. (laughs) (laughs) If it's just chewiness like that, that sounds actually quite nice with the sweetness. How does she cook the camas bulbs? Well, she usually harvests the bulbs in the fall and she pit cooks them. And the pit cook is something that I do kind of like a slow cooker in the oven, Uh, but it's um, like a slow cooker, but in the earth. And it'll cook for about 24 hours and it'll get really nice and caramelized. It can cook longer. It can cook up to 48 hours, but uh, it gets a little more sweeter. It can be eaten as it is, mixed with uh, native berries and uh, turned into a fruit roll-up. It can be cooked with other foods as well. Well, that's really interesting. I know that that pit cooking is is building up that heat down below the earth and then covering up the material within it to let it cook in the heat buried under the earth. But the other thing that's really getting me is this idea of a fruit roll-up. Fruit (laughs) roll-up. Camas fruit leather. That's right. Uh, But you know, Laura, today, Kwetlal covers only a tiny fraction of the territory it used to. In some places, it's been pushed out by invasive species, and much of the land where it used to grow has been developed. Cheryl sees a parallel with the way the Songhees people were removed from their traditional territories. Colonialism is the biggest impact on our traditional food systems. I guess you can call it environmental colonialism as one part of it, but really it's colonialism. So the Kwetlau food system is really an important part of our history. It's an important part of who we are, and it's an important part of our traditional foods, healthy land, healthy people. And that knowledge being passed down was also impacted by the oppression of of women's roles. And a big part of the women's role was managing these Kwetlau food systems. You can really hear there how colonialism has had such an impact on Indigenous people and their traditional foods. So what's Cheryl saying can be done now for Kwetlaw? Well, you can plant them. Cheryl is encouraging people on southern Vancouver Island to cultivate Kwetlaw in their own backyards. Planting Indigenous plants in your yard creates those connections. It creates those corridors between those fractured Kwetlaw food systems. And it's a way to... um, really look at it in the bigger picture when we start talking about things like climate change. 
when you start looking at what's going to survive, how things are going to shift and change, it's often going to be those indigenous plants and indigenous foods that really are going to sustain those environments. Not to say they're not going to be impacted, they most definitely will be, but uh, it's one of the better ways to consider having a less of a footprint in your backyard. So let's look at all of those benefits Cheryl's listing there. can be good for climate resiliency, good for ecosystems. They actually sound like they're quite pretty. <laughs> and planting them is also an act of decolonization. Exactly. Wow. <laughs> it's really as a way of giving back to where you live, not necessarily to appropriate the traditional knowledge or the food resources, but in the sense of getting to know the importance of these food systems in your yard and having that conversation is so important, like family conversations about those plants would be amazing for anyone in general, but especially for people who are not Indigenous to Lukwangan traditional lands. That conversation will just broaden the understanding of our history, the impacts of colonialism, and how we can make that change. I think by doing this, it's, it's an amazing way to be able to start decolonizing your perceptions, your understandings of history and the land today, and how things are for Indigenous people where you live. Now, Cheryl does want to make it clear that you shouldn't collect wild quetlal as its ecosystem is endangered. Instead, you should buy Indigenous seeds and seedlings from responsible businesses. And of course, not all of our listeners live somewhere where quetlal is a native species. But Cheryl says there are simple ways to start wherever you are. Knowing some of the traditional names is a really good way to start and and bringing in Indigenous plants into your backyard is another way to start shifting the mindset and decolonizing the mindset by decolonizing the land. And there's yet another reason to plant native species in your backyards, on your balconies and your community gardens this summer. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Laura. And yes, all that talk about climate and gardens was inspired by questions from you, our listeners. We really want to keep this going. Do you have a question we can help answer about how to help the climate in your everyday life? You can email us, earth at cbc.ca, or better yet, because we love to hear your voice. After all, we are audio. Email us a voice memo. Just look for the voice memo app on your phone, hit record, and then share it with us via email. The email again is earth at cbc.ca for your questions about how you might be able to help with the climate challenge. Wildfires have forced tens of thousands of Canadians to leave their homes over the past several weeks. And we brought you stories recently about just how stressful the evacuations can be. And no doubt there will be more this summer. Now, getting proper medical care in the midst of that kind of an emergency is a challenge all its own. Zarina Tompkins is a registered nurse and an associate professor at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. She's looking for ways to ensure those who need help get it where and when they need it. Hello. Hello. Your family lived through what what's now known as the Black Summer bushfire season in 2019-2020 that caused so much destruction and devastation. And I understand that's partly what inspired you to focus your research on the impact of climate on healthcare. Can you tell me what happened? Every year um, since I've met my husband, we've been going to visit um, his family who live in Yorubadala region, which is in New South Wales, Australia. And 
in 2019, um, the fires were already raging in parts of Victoria and New South Wales. And we um, happened to be there um, at that time when we were returning home. Um, as we uh, were leaving, my mother-in-law said, oh, would you mind filling up the water barrels around the house just in case something happens? And the fires were not meant to go through the region where they live, um, but just in case that things would happen, that the water barrels would be ready to be there. And so we did that. And then a few days later, when we were in Melbourne, uh, my husband um, found my daughter and I in the museum um, within the play area and said, oh, my mother wants to talk to you. And um, he looked quite distressed about that. And so um, when we actually, um, when I spoke to her and it turned out that the fires actually did come through that region and that in that moment um, she decided to evacuate because that was their plan. And then my father-in-law decided not to go, um, that he would stay and defend the farm. So she packed up all their stuff and left to the neighbouring town of Maruya. And um, when she got there, she realised that she had all his medication uh, with her. And so the reason why she wanted to talk to me is because they didn't know what to do about that. They couldn't go back to the farm because the fires were raging. And the idea was that in a couple of days' time, when it was safe to access the farm, provided that they found him alive, they would like to know what to do with medication. And so that was sort of start of my involvement with that particular situation and trying to actually help out uh, when they couldn't find anyone else to talk to, um, whether it was a nurse or a doctor or a person nearby who actually understood what to do in this case. My goodness, how critical was the medication for him? Very critical. Um, so at that time, he's unfortunately passed away since then, but oh, um, he's yeah, he um, had a heart failure and so quite a lot of medication was really important to be administered on time. But more importantly, it was actually, um, it was important to know what to do when you missed a series of medications and what not to do. And I think that's where the gap in information occurred. Just to be clear, he survived this. He, he got out of this. Yeah, so they managed to get to him about um, four days later and found that he used the water barrels that we left behind to defend the house. But he did die later on. Do you believe that his death his eventual death was linked to that lack of medication? You know, he had a procedure and died. It was meant to be a very simple procedure, but died um, from a massive stroke after that. And at the back of our minds, we just, we can't stop wondering whether the fact that he's missed so much medication during that time might have had a role in, in that event in some way, whether the volume of smoke that he breathed in contributed to the early death. And so... You know, from the logical perspective, you think, well, you know, there was a procedure, there was a complication, and he died. But deep inside, you can't help but wonder what the impact was at that stage as well. Again, I am so sorry for your loss. Um, and you've just published a paper on digital health apps. So how could they help in a kind of a crisis like a wildfire or, or a flood? Mm -hmm. Um in several ways, um, one of the really good apps that exists out there, it wasn't done by us, it was actually done by an Australian team elsewhere, 
And what it actually does, it tells the people about the quality of the air on the day. So if the people have that app around them, it actually tells them um, how much pollution is around and what they can do to protect their health. Another app that people have used is called Fire Near Me, which um, allows people to actually identify locations of the fires and compare that to their own vicinities and then actually plan their um, responses and, and journeys based on that information. So all those things are really quite valuable. And I think the more we look towards the adaptation to climate change, and because it is predicted that climate change is going to increase the frequency and intensity of these events, then the more we develop um, apps that actually look at people with heart disease or lung disease or kidney disease, the more we'll be able to equip communities to respond to this in a way that they need to. And is there an, are there other apps that you want to see created? What else is needed out there? One of the really important um, apps that we, that again, from personal experience would be required is that issue of medication management um, during emergencies, but medication management in general. So one of the things I think that really surprised me that when I spoke to my mother-in-law later on is that nobody actually sat down with them to talk about the medication management if it's missed how to prepare for a disaster in the context of managing medication, um, and then how to actually protect that medication when there is an extreme weather event. So, for example, some medications are really sensitive to temperature. So if um, that medication is exposed to a high temperature and you try to use it later on, it actually won't work. Okay. So if you see more, more reasons to have more of these apps, how do we get there? I, mean, I gather that unless public money is invested, you need to have somebody who sees that there's a business case for this. There's probably two ways I think about this. One is the part of the public health, which is, you know, what is the cost if we don't do something um, in this context? And then what is the actual cost of the of the initial investment in a product? So when we are thinking about um, digital health applications, a lot of times we think about the immediate disease in terms of, you know, how do we help people manage, for example, their mental health? How do we enable access to information during pregnancy and so on? But I think it's very different when we think about um, preparation for disasters, for example, or natural events that are related to climate change. Here, you actually have to be thinking about what is the community need, and every community will be different. So geographical area where the community finds itself will be different. So somebody in Central Australia, for example, will have very different needs than somebody in North Canada or somebody in, you know, um, in Europe. So designing these apps to actually meet the community need is really important, and that can be done in collaboration with the community. It strikes me too that that Australia and Canada are alike in that they have these. There are vast open spaces and areas of very small populations scattered across those spaces. So, is that something else that I would think you need to think about when you're designing and implementing the apps? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the interesting thing about digital health applications is that they really have to be inclusive. And when we talk about inclusion, we're not just thinking in terms of um, the technology itself, where we need to be thinking about the internet connection, where we need to think about the digital literacy, and we need to be thinking about you know, how many people are actually sharing one phone. We also need to be thinking about the cultural diversity, uh, First Nation voices. We need to be thinking about you know, whether the, the person is actually having a disability or not. It's really important, particularly for healthcare professionals, to get out of their shell and start working with all these other professions because 
adding that dimension of health to all these interventions that are out there, ensuring that inclusion is absolutely essential if we're going to deliver healthcare in, in the challenging times ahead. Finally, Zarina, I'm just wondering what advice you would give to people here in Canada as the country heads into a summer that will no doubt bring more wildfire and extreme weather? Oh, that is such a good question. I I thought, I thought about this often, um, particularly after the 2019-2020 um, Black Summer bushfires, because I don't think I've ever in my life felt so powerless um, and wondering, like, what is my role and responsibility here? And coming back to, to the very simple point, which is that we all have a sphere of influence and we all can make some changes where we are with what we've got and what we know. In my case, I reflect that I've returned back to what knowledge and skill do I have and how do I actually pull this together for the service to community. So how do I pull my nursing together? How do I pull my networks that I know? How do I um, pull my knowledge of, of cell biology and, and understanding physiology into, again, serving community? and then starting to use my voice to advocate for change. And so if I thought about one single message is that as individuals, we still have some degree of ability and and power and control to make small changes, no matter how small they are, um, because in time they do build up and they do lead to something bigger and better. And I genuinely wish you all the best with Um, the weather and the changes that are coming through and hope that um, there will be better days ahead. I wish you the same, Zarina. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for showing interest. We've got time now for a few more climate stories in the news this week. Investment in solar energy is set to pass funds invested in oil, according to the International Energy Agency. $1 trillion U.S. is expected to go to coal, oil and gas, but $1.7 trillion is expected to be invested in clean technologies, including solar, EVs, nuclear power, low-emission fuels and heat pumps. Now, we've reported on the history of the Montreal Protocol, the successful effort to put restrictions on chlorofluorocarbons that were eating away at the Earth's protective ozone layer. A new study published in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences shows that treaty helped delay the melting of Arctic ice by 15 years while helping to slow global warming overall. And by the way, it's worth your time to listen back to our story about this that we did last fall. Just search CBC What on Earth? Montreal Protocol. And of course, you can read more about climate change in the CBC What on Earth newsletter. You can subscribe to have it delivered to your inbox every week. And if you missed any of today's program, you can listen on demand at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That is all for us, though. The show was put together this week by associate producers Missy Johnson, Zoe Yunker, and Danielle Piper, producers Rachel Sanders and Molly Siegel. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. Catherine Rolfson is our senior producer. And special thanks to YouTuber Go Experimental. For sharing that audio of butane explosions again. Listeners, don't try this at home. Maybe plant a native flower instead. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. Bye.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.